0: start off with a question. What's in a word? You know, words are pretty powerful. Uh, You know, we kind of have this hypersensitivity to words in our culture uh, today. You know, we just look, even this week, we look at our politicians or we look at our sports figures and we look at people in high places and they've had 35-year careers that just come toppling down because of a word or, or a sentence that they've said just kind of in a, in a brief moment of time. And so words are powerful. And I look back 2,000 years ago at the life of Jesus. And I, and I see that his words were scrutinized. And actually that's why they killed him. Was because of the words, the things that Jesus said. And so we even see back then that Jesus was using powerful words. And they kind of missed it. They missed the point. And so, words can be destructive. They can be powerful. The Bible says that the tongue is a pretty dangerous instrument. And it's not the organ that's the problem. It's the words that come off of it. And so, words are powerful. And so, Randy started this series that we're in last week called Jesus, the Untold Story. And we're going to be looking at the words of the Apostle John. Uh, More Specifically, we're going to be looking today at the opening lines of the, the, the Gospel of John. And so I wanted to have a little bit of an exercise today to kind of break the ice. Uh, opening lines are powerful too. I mean, there's books and movies where I think all of us would remember the opening line. And so I'm going to ask for you guys to participate a little bit here. What I'm going to do is I'm going to put an opening line of a book. There's one movie. On the screen, and by show of hands, when I ask you to do it, I want you to tell me if you know what novel or movie that line came from. And so let's put the first one up on the screen. It was a dark and stormy night. First question How many of you have heard that? Yeah, a lot of people have heard that. That's pretty familiar. Now, here's the question How many of you know what novel that came from? I got a couple in the crowd. Does somebody want to yell it out? What's no, 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 sorry. Frankenstein? Okay, no, you're, I'm sorry. None of you are right. It's, and and it, yeah, there's a reason. It's a, it's a novel called Paul Clifford. It was written in 1830 by a Frenchman named Boulware Lytton, And it's about a highway robber during the French Revolution. And so I'm going to be honest with you, I didn't know it either. Um. <laughs> I had to use my Google box to figure that one out. And so, but isn't it funny how we've heard that over and over again, and we never really know what the origins are? It's something that's become kind of cliche. It's even the way jokes get started out. Um, It was a dark and stormy night. Okay, so that was the hard one. Now I'm going to throw the softball at you. Let's put the next one up there. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. Guy can't make up his mind, can he? So how many of you know what novel that came from? Oh, wow, really? Yell it out there. What was the name of the novel? Yeah, you. Tale of Two Cities. There you go. Charles Dickens. And so we all probably read that in high school. Now, the next one is from a movie. It actually was from, an, uh, there was a novel, but it was written into a screenplay. This line isn't in the novel, but it's the opening line of a movie. And so I'm going to put that up on the screen and see if you know this one. It's already there. I believe in America. America's made my fortune. How many of you know which movie that came from? Nobody? Not even the guys? Guys, I'm really disappointed. It's The Godfather. Only the best movie ever made well, was a prequel to the best movie ever made because Godfather 2 was better. Godfather 3, not so much. Okay, guys, I'm sorry. I want, to meet, I want you to meet me out at the sign. After, I want you to have your man cards ready because you're going to lose a couple of points. Now I have one more line up here. It's the last one. Let's go ahead and put it up there. Still waiting. One more. No slide for that one? Okay, I'll say it. It's in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Everybody knows that, Right? I'd be real, I don't even want to ask because I'm going to assume everybody knows that that is the opening line of the greatest book ever written. And so we're going to be looking at the opening lines of the book of John, but first I thought we would compare it to the opening lines of the other Gospels. And so we'll start with Matthew. We'll go in order. Uh, in Matthew, the, it starts out like this, a record of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Now, then he goes on to spell out the ancestry of Christ uh, all the way from the beginning of time to uh, the birth, I'm sorry, from the patriarchs to the birth of Jesus. And so sometimes we blow right by that because we can't pronounce most of the names, and it seems kind of monotonous. And and I understand that I do the same thing, but stop for a second and just read those sometimes. You'll see some characters pop out, and uh, it's kind of interesting to see who is in the lineage of Christ the, the, the word Matthew, of course, Matthew was originally Levi, and his name became Matthew after his confrontation with Jesus. The meaning of the word Matthew is a gift of God. Have you all ever thought about looking up the meaning of your name? I mean, I, I, I was with somebody, and, and he said his name meant, uh, what did it mean? It meant um, mighty warrior. And so I thought, man, I've got to look that up. I've got to know what my name is. You know, I was expecting something that exciting. I was kind of hoping for it. But Tony Harden means triumphant farmer. I guess you have a good crop. I don't know, but, but I, I'd like to switch that. But that's the meaning of my name. And it'd be kind of interesting. Look up the meaning of your name sometime and see if maybe your life might uh, kind of parallel with that. Just Just a fun exercise. <clears throat> Excuse me. And so that's Matthew. The the funny thing is, Matthew, it's amazing that Matthew was a tax collector. That was his profession. He wasn't respected by the Romans that hired him, and he was absolutely hated by his own people, probably his own family. And isn't ama- is amazing that God uses this kind of sinner to be a gift from him. It's just proof that God uses sometimes unlikely people to get the job done. And so Matthew's purpose for his writing was to kind of lead his Jewish audience to the prophecies from the Old Testament of the Messiah. That's kind of the summary of the book of Matthew. Then there's the book of Mark, and his starts out like this, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And so that's kind of to the point, right? I mean, there's, there's no mints in words there. Um, We know that the book of Mark is not a chronological view of the life of Jesus, and it was written by John Mark. And uh, a lot of people believe that it's actually the compilation of Peter's teachings. Now, Some people believe that Peter was probably illiterate and couldn't write, and so a lot of people kind of theorize that the book of Mark is um, a compilation of Peter's preachings and that it was John Mark who arranged those into the gospel. And so, you know, there's no real way for us to prove or disprove that, but I think it's a viable theory. And then there's long-winded Luke. Luke uh, has kind of a long beginning to his book. It goes like this. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the first eyewitnesses and servants of the word Therefore, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account. Okay, so the book of Luke is said to be a companion to the book of Acts. Uh, Some people say the Acts of the Apostles. I think it's more appropriate to say the Acts of the Holy Spirit. And so the book of Acts was also written by Luke. And so Luke is, uh, is... is a Gentile. We know that from from our history. We also know that he was a Greek-educated physician. And so his gospel is very precise, and it is very to the point. And his is uh, the most chronological of the gospels that we have. By his own definition, it was an orderly account. So if you want to see what the life of Christ, the ministry of Christ, looks like, Luke is a good place to start. It's also important to know that Luke was not a witness to the ministry of Jesus Christ. He depended on eyewitness accounts. And some people believe that James contributed greatly, the brother of Jesus. Uh, But I think it's probably more accurate to say that Jesus' own mother, Mary, contributed a lot of the information, a lot of the witness that Luke uh, writes. Mary is more well-defined in the book of Luke than any of the other Gospels. And so he was not there to see it, but he was basing this on eyewitness accounts. And so Luke, I think, if you had had to talk about his purpose, it was to kind of spell out the way to salvation through Jesus Christ. That was kind of the theme of Luke's book. And then there's the book of John. And so what we're going to see is all these Gospels kind of have a different way of beginning, and John's is probably more different than the others. And what do we know about John? Uh, we know that John was the apostle that lived the longest, right? And so I want to I take a little sidebar here and uh, talk a little bit about the term apostle. Sometimes we use the term apostle and disciple kind of interchangeably. And we're right about half the time. Because all the apostles were definitely disciples, but not all of the disciples were apostles. And so the, Jesus had a lot of disciples, At some point in his ministry, it's believed that he might have had 14,000, 15,000 people following him, especially in the region of Galilee. And so there's a lot of people following Jesus. And later on, though, when Jesus starts to spell out what it costs to follow him, he starts saying things like, you need to die to yourself. And then the big one, he said, you need to be willing to pick up your cross and come with me where I'm going. Now, let's think about that for a second, because we see the cross as a reverent symbol today. But when Jesus made those statements to his disciples, they knew the cross was an instrument of execution. And so what he was saying is, you need to be willing to die for me if you want to be my disciple. And folks, when he started talking that way, the crowds died down a little bit, actually quite a bit. We went from fourteen thousand people to just the time before Jesus ascended, we know there were five hundred men and women that were disciples that heard his commission. And so the crowds dissipated. And so there were twelve apostles. The twelve apostles were disciples, but they were appointed leaders by Jesus. One didn't make the cut and had to be replaced at the end. We know that, right? In Judas. And so, but they were the leaders that Jesus chose. While he was here and doing his earthly ministry. And uh, there are apostles today. There's no doubt in my mind. So they didn't all die off. Jesus calls others to be apostles and leaders in his church even today. And so we know that John died an old man. Uh, He was first um, exiled to the island of Patmos. They tried to kill him, but it didn't work. And uh, tradition says, as Randy explained last week, that he spent his last days in a port city called Caesarea Maritime. And this was this huge man-made harbor that Herod the Great built. It's said to be one of the seven wonders of the world. Uh, The ruins are still there today. It's on the coastal plain south of Mount Carmel uh, on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea in Israel. And so that's said to be where John lived out his final days. He's the only apostle that died a natural death. And so, John's opening line, uh, if you want to follow along, look up on your app or look in your Bible, uh, it goes like this, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Well, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I mean, it's, it's a little bit confusing, but, uh, but it's, you know, it sounds kind of, there's a little bit of familiarity there in that first line uh, that, he, uh, that he said. Um, and so, it's, uh, it's interesting stuff. And what is the Word? You know, that's, there's a lot that's, that's going on through there. And I'll, I'll finish. I left off one verse. Let's finish in verse 3. It says, All things were created through him, and apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. So what's John talking about? What is the Word? John says, In the beginning was the Word. Now, there's something familiar about that statement, right? We just talked about the opening line in the book of Genesis. It says, in the beginning, right? And so, John is saying that the Word was always there. He's going back to the beginning of time. And he's saying the Word was there. And it means that before time began, before the seas flowed, before the the heavens uh, were created, before the stars, the sun, and the moon, before all that came into existence, the word was there and present. And so he's not talking about the words that come out of your mouth. He's not saying that at all. I think what John maybe might be doing here, and this gets a little complicated, but I think he's tipping his hat to the Greek way of thinking. He used the word logos. And the, to the Greeks, you know, the, the word logos, the, the word was the driving force behind everything. The Greeks were very philosophical, very intellectual people, and they, they believed that the Word was the driving force for everything that was created, the universe or what have you. And so they used the word Logos. The Jews had a name for the Word, and they called it Yahweh. They called it God. And so when John is talking, he's, he's reaching out to all cultures, to all uh, lines of thought, but John is referring to God. And so God was there in the beginning. And then he says, um, in the beginning the Word was God and the Word was with God. And so according to John, the Word is God. But if the Word is God, and if God was with God, then how can God be with God? It's kind of confusing, but I think what John is referring to is two parts of the Trinity. God the Father and God the Son. And so he is saying that the Son was with God. He's saying that Jesus was there. You know, he's using the, the Trinity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So the, the two parts of the Trinity, are the three that make one, the three natures of God. John is saying that Jesus was from the beginning. And it's through Christ that everything is created and I, I want to just kind of deal with something that we're we're hearing in our culture right now. There's this statement that says Christians... Uh, this, there's one particular guy in a high spot that said this. Christians need to ditch the Old Testament. And I understand where he's coming from and maybe where he's going. But the bottom line is, Jesus is throughout the entire Bible. Everything points toward Jesus in the Old Testament. There's not two separate books with two separate points... Jesus is like a golden thread woven through all of time in scripture. And so I think we need to be careful when we say things like ditch the Old Testament. And I'll get off my soapbox a little bit. So Jesus is the Word and He's alive through the entire Bible. John goes on to say this, The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. So, the Word was God. The Word was with God. But what's John mean when he says the Word became flesh? And of course we know that he's talking about what God the Son did. That He came down from heaven and He dwelt among us. He dwelt among us. The The word that's actually used is He tabernacled with us. And that's kind of giving a nod to Moses because God gave Moses that first design for the tabernacle. And it's this... This tent, tabernacle also means tent. So Jesus tented with us. And so that this, this tent that was built uh, by the Jews, it was surrounded by a kind of a fence and there was the temple in the back and in the back of the temple was the Holy of Holies separated by a curtain, by a veil. And so back then the presence of God would reside in the Holy of Holies but not all the time. It says that when a fog settled over the temple, that that indicated that the presence of God was there. And when the presence of God was there, the Jews never moved. But when the fog lifted and indicated that the presence of God had left them, then they would pack the tent up, and they would wander, and they did that for 40 years. And then when Solomon built the temple in Jerusalem, it was a permanent structure, but it followed the same plan as the plan that God gave Moses. The presence of God existed in the Holy of Holies. And so that's this temple that was built on Mount Moriah. That's the, that's the mountain where Abraham, the patriarch, offered Isaac. And so it's there above that rock that the temple was built that the Holy of Holies existed. And so the Jews, even today, they believe the Holy of Holies exists in the rocks of Mount Moriah. That's why we have what's called the Western Wall. The temple's not there anymore. It was torn down by the Romans in 70 AD. But the Temple Mount was reconstructed and was built by Herod the Great before it was torn down. It's a huge structure. It's about three football fields. And remnants of that remain today. And the Jews go to the Western Wall to pray. We call it the Wailing Wall. I found out that Israelis don't like that. It's it's not the Wailing Wall to them. It's the Western Wall. Why do they go to just one wall? It's Because over time, Jerusalem was was defeated and rebuilt and reconstructed over the centuries many, many times. And so things have built up around the Temple Mount, except where? Except the Western Wall. And so the Western Wall, the reason the Jews go there is because they feel like that's as close as they can get to God. Because they believe the Shekinah, or the glory of God, still exists in those rocks in Mount Moriah. Now, folks, that was true, I think, back in the first century before Jesus because the Jews had to go to the temple three times a year for their sacrifices and for the atonement of sin. But it's also true that that's been ripped apart now by Jesus. That God does not exist in a rock somewhere, and we don't have to travel 6,000 miles, thankfully, uh, to go experience His presence. God exists in the hearts of all Christians God dwells in us now because of the sacrifice that Jesus made. And so God came down and took on humanity. He came, on, came down and, and, and was basically made just like us, is what the Bible tells us. Jesus became a human. And, and I want to just briefly say this. I think in our world today, too, if we're, we're not careful, we, we start to dismiss the deity of Christ. We start to just follow, you know, the human of Christ. There's opinions out there uh, in the secular world that Jesus was just a, a, a good moral teacher, and we're dismissing the deity. But I'm going to tell you what I think we've got to be careful about in the church too is sometimes I think we dismiss his humanity, that Jesus was fully man, like us in every way. And so, think about that. He was tempted like us in every way. Just pause for a second and think about the worst things that go through your head. I'll think about what goes through mine. I think about the things I've actually followed through with, the temptations that I've had. And you've got to understand, and this is, this is hard to hear sometimes, Jesus was tempted just like us. He was tempted like us in every way. And it's through his humanity that he chose obedience to the Father. Jesus only had one distinction between us and that he was sinless. And I firmly believe he never used his deity to make his obedience easier. And so when you you look at humanity, sometimes we're a little afraid that that diminishes Jesus. But you look at what he did as a man, and it, it actually it builds him up. And we look at him in a whole different way. Jesus was God, is God, but he's also fully human. That's a concept I can't fully explain, but I think there's truth to it. I love what Philip Yancey said in a quote about Jesus. And he said this, Who could have entered the world and did anything he wanted, who could order armies and empires about like pawns on a chessboard, this God emerged as a baby who could not speak or eat solid food or control his bladder, and who depended on a poor teenage mother for shelter, food, and love. Why on earth would the creator of the universe come down and take on humanity and experience the things that we experience? John said this, In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only son who came from the father, full of grace. No more a powerful a statement about Jesus. But I want to cover those last couple of words. The Bible says, John says, Jesus was full of grace and truth. And, and I think we, we mess up a little bit here too. Because there's, in our world, again in our culture, you know, it's said that Jesus was full of love. Absolutely. I heard one, a colleague, a preacher of the Word, stand up in front of a, of a crowd of non-believers, and he said this. He said, Jesus is love, and it ends right there. And you know, he's partially right. Jesus is love, but it doesn't end right there. Jesus is also truth. Jesus had that per, that perfect balance of grace and truth. We see time and time again the examples of the interactions that Jesus had. When someone came to him with a repentant heart and in humility, Jesus forgave them and then most of the time instructed them, don't keep doing what you're doing. You know, when the woman at the well, that was a pretty hard conversation. There's different opinions about that, but I think it was a confrontation. Jesus spoke the truth to this woman instead of kind of hiding what he knew. And because he spoke the truth and offered grace, she became a believer and then she went out and the Samaritans became a believer when they wouldn't normally have had a chance to even hear the gospel. The, the woman caught in adultery standing in the circle with the guys standing around holding rocks. You know, Jesus told her, there's no one here to condemn you. Your sins are forgiven. And then he said this, now go and sin no more. Jesus offered grace and truth and gives us the example of how to do the same. So why did Jesus become flesh? Why did he become like us in every way? I think it's so he could relate to us. So he could understand our condition. It's like a king that that went out and lived among his subjects. He could relate to us. He was tempted like us in every way and he came became human so that he could die for us so that we could live that's why he grew up from that baby we talked about uh to be about 30 years old then he started a three and a half journey a three and a half year journey that took him to a hill in a common quarry just outside the damascus gate in the old city of jerusalem and it's on that hill that jesus was beaten and he was murdered he was hung on a cross. And then he was carried just a short distance to a tomb. It wasn't even his tomb. It was borrowed. And he laid there for three days. And then he was resurrected by the power of the Holy Spirit to give us hope. Resurrection is what gives us hope. If we take that out of the story, we have no hope. If we dismiss the resurrection, then what we're doing here is kind of silly. Jesus was raised from the dead so that we can live. He was resurrected by that power for us. And also to grant us direct access to God. Before we didn't have it, we had to have an intermediary. And because of Jesus, he's the the last, he's it. He's the final high priest. And because of him, that veil ripped apart the world was flipped upside down the ground shook and we have access to a living and a loving god just before that night when he died on the cross he gave his disciples something special he gave him the ordinance gave them the ordinance of communion he gave them the simple meal to remember him by I actually modeled it as he as he passed the trays, as he broke the bread. And so he was showing them how to love one another. And, you know, I look at the example in the book of Acts of the first church, and it says that whenever they came together, they broke bread and had glad hearts as they ate their food. What that literally means is that they were having communion with God and having communion with one another. Now, something you got to understand. Let's think about the first church for a second those people were living under persecution. I mean, it was, it was rough to be a believer in the first church. Uh, we kind of maybe don't think about it that way sometimes, but I kind of wonder when they were eating the bread, if they were looking around the table at empty chairs of people that had been killed for their faith. As they drank the wine, I wonder if they were noticing the injuries and the scars on the folks that sat around them. And so they were loving one another. They were having communion with God, but they were communing with one another as well. And I think that today, we're going to get ready, we're going to take this communion uh, together. And uh, I just want you to think about a couple of things as we're doing this. I want you to understand that God commanded us to love one another. He commanded us to love one another. Just before he served that final meal, he was on his knees washing the feet of his disciples. And he said he was doing this because he wanted them to love each other as he loved them. So as we're taking this together, I think Jesus is telling us to remember that we need to love each other the same as Jesus loved us. In Jesus' greatest commandment, he said, Love your neighbor as you love yourself. I've said this before. That doesn't mean love the people that love you back. It doesn't mean just love uh, the people that you can stand. It means love the person that's in proximity to you. And so, in our world, the way our world is today, as you're taking these emblems, I think you're going to look around, you're going to see a lot of people you don't even know. And so God calls you to love those people. God calls us as a church to love one another. When you're taking that bread, I'd like you to look around the room today and say, would I die for these people? When you're taking the, the juice today, I'd like you to still look around and say, would I carry a cross for this guy that's sitting beside me? think about that. Are we willing to make that kind of sacrifice for one another? Now the great thing about that first church when people looked in from the outside man, they saw something different there. People saw them loving each other and caring for one another and then they started joining them. It says their numbers grew daily, those that were coming to faith. My prayer is is that we can be the kind of church that when the world looks in and folks, we live in a dark place in Woodford County, and we're no different than any other county. When the world's looking in and they see us, they say, man, I got to have that. There's something there. There's something going on. It, it ain't us, it's Jesus. But I, I, my prayer is, is that's what they'll see when they look at Journey Church. You know, you might be here today, and, and maybe you might be here and you haven't given your life to Christ. And uh, maybe you haven't made that confession, but maybe something's been pulling you towards that. And that's the way it works. God calls us to Him. And if you haven't made that, I'm going to be up here uh, after we have communion. I'm also going to probably stick around while the last song's being played. There'll be other people available. If that's you, come up and talk to us today. We'd love to pray with you. I'd love to kind of work out with you what your next step might be. And uh, maybe you're here today and there's something that God has spoken to you that you really haven't heard before. In a minute, we're going to, like I said, we're going to go into communion here in just a minute. Uh, If you want someone to pray with, I'll be up here. Maybe you're going through some rough stuff. Maybe there's some things that are troubling you, and uh, we would love to spend time in prayer with you. We'll do that up front. We'll do that on a continual basis. We don't want to leave you alone once you contact us. Uh, There's always ways that you can call us. You can check on the connect card you can grab those in the lobby that you want to speak to a minister but we're available here for you because we here our, our mission is to move people on a simple journey toward jesus we'd love to help you take your first step or your next steps would you pray with me uh, as we go into this time of communion there's a table in front of each section if you would come forward after my prayer and uh, just take these emblems you can i've seen people standing in a huddle doing that together and that's awesome uh, you can go back to your seat or what have you. But pray with me as we go into this time uh, of celebration. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for opening our eyes this morning, and we see that as a miracle, that you give us life. And Lord, you give us this sustenance, this this bread and this juice, that Just on itself, the the bread, the juice means nothing, but when we put the meaning of communion to it, it's the whole world. And God, I pray that you would just convict us to look around the room and understand that you call us to love one another and be that example, be that shining light in a dark place. God, we love you. And it's in your son's holy name that we offer our prayers.